Well, hello everyone, and welcome back for another episode of your favorite podcast, Ranching Reboot. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This week, I'm actually recording everything from on the road in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've been out at the Regenerate Conference, and I might have had a little scheduling failure and didn't have anything lined up to go. So I managed to get with some friends and record some great content here that I'm hoping to share with you in just a few minutes. It is a little on the short side, so if you feel a little shortchanged this week, I'd like to recommend you to go back and listen to number 13 with Jeff Goodwin. I think that episode deserves a little bit more appreciation than it's gotten. This podcast is only possible with the support of my awesome patrons on patreon.com slash Red Hills Rancher and my subscribers on Spotify. For just five bucks a month, there is an ad-free feed. You don't have to listen to these, you know, two, three, four minute intros anymore. So just head on over to patreon.com slash Red Hills Rancher and become one of the patrons today or go subscribe on Spotify. It's just five dollars a month. Support for this episode also provided by the Autobahn Conservation Ranching Program at Blue Nest Beef. Blue Nest Beef offers a great product called Bobo Links. You've heard me talk about them before, and I tell you guys, if going to these conferences, sometimes the food, eh, not so much. The snacks, not so much. But if I got a Bobo Link in my pocket, I know I'm going to be okay. Right now is a great time to stock up before conference season. And you know, Bobo Links, come to think of it, probably make a pretty decent stocking stuff or two. So... I'll leave you with that. You can order some today by clicking the link in the show notes. And don't forget to use the code BOBOREBOOT at checkout for an extra discount. Support for this episode also provided by my good friends at Wild Ass Soap Company. Their CBD gummies are helping me get to sleep in strange beds, and their cold-ass muscle gel keeps my body working. Get yours today at wildassoaps.com reboot, or just click the link in the show notes. And you can use the code REBOOT for another 10% discount at checkout. I guess that's about all I've got. I'm in a closet on a crappy 10-year-old set of earbuds recording this, so we're just going to get onto the show. Be right after the ads. See ya. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cole Bush, Jillon, Dylan, thank you for joining me. It's been a great three days here at Regenerate. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes you get done with these and it's like, well, what do we need to talk about? You know, we've been talking to people for three days. We just want to go back to the ranch and just be back with our animals. So um, Cole, I think we'd give you a little bit of a break. Dylan, um, why don't you tell us who you are and, uh, and we'll go from there. Well, my name is Dylan Boken. Uh, I wear a couple different hats living in Ojai Valley. I'm a project manager and lead shepherd, along with John at Shepherdess Land and Livestock, a contract grazing company where we run sheep and goats, and as well as a founder of Bokehouse Hearth and Husbandry, which is a grass-fed or beyond grass-fed sheep grazing business and um, meat purveyor. Okay, we're going to circle back to that because I want to hear. I definitely want to hear about your your meat business, John. How did you meet Cole? Ooh. Good one. I have known Cole Bush since she went by Brittany. 
we met, I was probably 18 or 19 and you were 20 or 21. Um, and we just kind of hippie kids hiking around, climbing trees. Um, and yeah, we were good friends, close friends for a couple of years. And I actually didn't see her for around 10. And she came into the uh, coffee shop that I was working at. And I sat down and we had a cup of coffee. And she told me about this new business enterprise she had uh, gotten involved in. And I was like, well, that's weird. I just stopped and bought this this old book just to have like a, a funny relic on my bookshelf, which is Newsom's Sheep Diseases. Okay. So she was like, well, I need that book. Come up to the land, check it out. And so I, I brought the book up from San Diego to Ojai, and she was running around doing a thousand things, running two businesses by herself for the most part. And so rather than hike around and look at the land, I was like, well, you, I could probably help. So I started helping, and I just kept helping. And now that's what I only help. Okay. So are you from there in Ojai Valley in Southern California? No, I'm originally from North Carolina, but I, for the most part, grew up in San Diego, which is where I know Cole from. Okay. From a, a different world, not agriculturally related. Okay. What about you, Dylan? I grew up in Topanga Canyon in Los Angeles and then moved to Ojai to raise livestock. Why? Well, I wanted to keep one foot in L.A. where I had some family and friends, but, but ultimately I thought that I was only going to access land and raise livestock through purchasing land. And I had been, um, I'd been talking with various people like Sarah Gleason and Jesse Smith who worked with organizations, conservation agencies, and used easements to access land along with a lot of other work they did to do that. And so I thought maybe if I started talking to landowners in Ojai and conservation agencies that I could partner with them because they'd want land grazed and then I'd magically just get access to land. Um, I even, you know, wrote to conservation agencies and th things like that. If only it worked that way, right? <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I understood why most were not interested, even the ones that asked for proposals. And at the time I was writing it, I didn't have any experience. And I knew that's why I wouldn't have hired me or, you know, bought land with me. Um, and so I knew, especially after going to a, a conference like Kavira, it became particularly clear. You know, I got to see how skilled and competent and uh, effective a lot of these young NAP apprentices were and I just knew that I needed to get on land no matter what start getting experience and so I started volunteering with a cattle guy in Silverado at Five Bar Beef. Okay. Did that for about a year uh, with as much time as I could and uh, COVID hit around them and I was f finishing up some construction projects I was doing and right when I wrapped those up I had been in, I had met Cole through those 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 explorations in Ojai. A guy had connected us because he knew that she was trying to start her business in Ojai and so we had met, and um, by the time she was ready to launch her business, I was done with my projects, and so I came up about a month after she had launched her business. Awesome, awesome. And you just didn't stop not coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had to go back and look. Cole, the first time we talked was episode number 28, so that was all the way back in 2020. Um, and that was, you know, of course, we were in the first year the the pandemic and everything was strange and now that you've had a couple of years to settle in um tell me what could you maybe talk a little bit about where you are now with your businesses where you thought you'd be last time we spoke and and where you're planning on going 
Wow, 2020, the last time we spoke, a lot has happened. It feels like the world has changed. <laughs> the flock and goats, the flock of sheep and herd of goats, the flirt has grown quite a bit. The team of basically one has turned into six and is growing all the time. And I, I am so stoked to say that there have been more successes in ways that I couldn't have imagined, as well as challenges. I feel that the business has grown in, in that there's been maturity around the edges of the things that we, in our operations, that we, we've refined over time. You know, just little functional types of things. It, it, it feels a little more grounded in ops. Like pieces of institutional knowledge that you only gain from practice? You, these are the things you only learn by doing time and time and time again until, you know, we do it wrong enough till we realize we have to do it a different <laughs> way. Um, that's like practical stuff on the ground, but as a business owner, the fine tweaking, I think, is it's, it's all the time. It's all the time. And I, I, I thought back in 2020 that I would still be in a moment of free fall, like, wow, I'm still in this new business. I got another business. I have aspirations to, to train more people, get more people into this work and support the industry. And I am certainly still in this really bright-eyed, overwhelmed state. But because there's now more of a team around me, it feels like we, I literally have a herd of incredible people and we're doing this together and it feels more possible and it feels like it's getting bigger and it's getting bigger faster. And it's the most rewarding thing. Listening to your presentation today, I was really impressed about you know, what you've done in the last couple of years and the way you've grown your team. How much of a problem is, is turnover or brain drain mm-hmm. and, and losing talented people? And, Maybe it's not a total loss because maybe they're just going the next valley over to do the same thing, but is, are you having trouble keeping, keeping knowledge and keeping trained people around in your network that you can still access? That's a good question. I think a lot of outfits have challenges with keeping people. The way that I look at it is how do I bring people? Recognizing that for many, if not most, this is a stepping stone for people to get a taste into what this work is, how they could fit into it or how it can fit into their lives and design job descriptions for individuals recognizing where they are in their life. And I think that that's probably not the way most business owners do it because business owners have a job, they need it filled and then they get the person and then if they don't do the job, then they go. I, because of the nature of my passion for the, the education and training component, I see that the only way to successfully build, build our team is to be flexible in designing how it can work for an individual. So I would say that we've had tr- a tremendous, I, I, feel, I feel that we've had tremendous success in keeping around the people who've become the backbone of what the outfit is. And I'm excited to say, you know, John and Dylan have been there from the first year. Now the two folks that we trained up for Shepherds this past season are coming into their second season. And as we mature, it's 
it's, it's feeling really rewarding seeing that we're going to be able to retain folks, but now it's a balance of how much you grow the business and how many new people do you bring on, and then being prepared to not have enough labor when you when you need it. You know, life happens, people leave. I I don't know, Dylan. What do you what would you say about retention? Yeah, I think that. What I, a lot of the things that I've seen work with retention are not necessarily replicable things. I think some aspects of them are, um, you know, something in, you know something that's helped me stay around. For example, the you know the old forms of shepherding. You're out there living with your sheep seven days a week. Even with our new electric fences and trailers, people are out there seven days a week. Um, even if somehow you're given a weekend, which is a design for people. They aren't in charge of the sheep for two days, but they still sleep at the trailer all seven days. Um, we, from the get-go, Cole and I worked where I have uh, we, what we call a swing shift shepherd, which I, means I'm on three to five days a week, and then I have time off. And this is how I was able to build my meat business with the time off. And I think that's one component of retention is diversifying my, my plugins to sheep. So I have the contract grazing. I'm getting to learn stockmanship. Uh, I'm getting to learn husbandry, but then I also have, uh, I also have the meat business now, where I get to learn butchery. I get to connect back to my community selling a product. I get to eat the the fruit of our labor. Uh, that's one aspect that that's really increased retention. One of our other shepherds, Noe, has created his shearing business, and there's a lot of other ways that I'm hoping to see shepherds who want to plug in in that way look for for diversifying their time working with shepherdess and and hopefully using it as a launch pad for their own passion their own business <clears throat> but uh <laughs> a, another another one is uh I lost my train of thought on that one i had a thought in regards to it i i think one of the The, the main focus of this business, or not the main focus, but one of the main focuses has always been education. So the, the consideration around training and retention has been part of the conversation the entire time. It wasn't just training for the need to fill a position, but we were focused on how, or like more so you, but like as a team, the focus was on how does the training work, what is training and who works. So I think our metrics, We've been paying close attention with like a very granular view of what does and doesn't work with different people. And so even if we don't, if we don't retain somebody, it's like, well, did, did we fail to, to make this work for them? Or you know, was it just circumstantial? But I think it's interesting to hear both of you talk about that because it's, yeah, the, the metrics that we use, and I think we have like a few key terms, like the, the secondary interest in the industry, right? Like a meat business, or sharing, uh, potentially even beyond that, but like secondary income, right? That, that's the one that I drew a blank on. Yeah. yeah. So like if you're coming in to, to learn, maybe you're working two days a week and then Noe has another job that pays significantly better than herding sheep, but he wants to be doing this work. He works in, in website it, it, design. It's work he can do from the, the shepherd's trailer. Yeah. And like the and, and for me it's I do I work as a EOV monitor and so I'm able with with the Saver Institute and so I'm able to plug in data on the internet whether that's through a hotspot or going to a local place and earn other income and tie in to to the world in another way but it's it's just a way to bolster my number because 
the the ups and downs of shepherding. It's like you can have a 14-hour day or you can have a three-hour day depending on the work you've done and what sort of things have gone on. It's, it's kind it, of the same with cows. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just picturing this, you know, like an old-timey sheep camp on wooden wheels <laughs> with a Starlink on top and somebody right. sitting in there writing code and then going out and checking the checking fence for the cows. Um, so, Cole, you you had a term yesterday or earlier that I want you to explain. Ecological doctor. So, how does one get a doctorate in in ecological? You have to actually uh, you have to go and take a residency. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically, I think, what our first season shepherds are doing is just deep, deep, deep experience on the ground with the animals, observing what are the impacts of grazing on the daily based off of our choices. So the phrase ecological doctor, the term ecological doctor, for me, I first discovered it through Fred Provenza, who, who's where the premise of being an ecological doctor is that we use prescriptive approaches to have impacts based off of a goal. And as doctors, doctors, they, they address symptoms of things, but good doctors address the systemic issue underlying of an illness. And so when we think of the ecological doctors in a, association to grazing or being a grazier, it's the choices we make as operators on the daily that makes us ecological doctors, us caring about our impacts on all of the ecosystem processes as much as the health and well-being and performance of our animals. That balance is critical and that precision takes prescription. And that to me is how I imagine a doctor is supposed to do their job. Okay. Okay. What's, is it harder to teach a new person coming to you? Um, and you guys can answer too. Is it harder to teach the ecology? Is it harder to teach the stockmanship? What, what's the most difficult thing you guys have found to teach new shepherds? Well, Every, every person comes into the scene with their own, their own interests and their own knacks and their own skill sets. Often people who, often if one does not like a thing, they're not going to always put all of their effort into learning that thing first. I would say the hardest thing to, to, to train and to learn, which is such an individualized experience, is working with a dog. Okay. I still feel, for me, I feel such an, uh, I feel so novice at that piece, but to me is the most critical, if not, yeah, the most critical thing in being able to do our job running livestock in absurd, crazy places. I've had 60-year-old men that have run dogs for 40 years tell me they're still learning dogs. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Every and, dog is different. And a good dog is literally worth their weight in gold. Mm -hmm. I mean, you... I've been around some really good cow dogs, and I can't imagine how much a good sheep dog or a good like a good border collie. I can't imagine how much better that that makes your life. Do you, do you have dogs, Dylan? Oh yeah, yeah. My dog is Gus, and uh, it's the grandson of Cole's first dog. And great she, grandson. Great great grandson. And uh, it was the daughter, the the son of her current dog when I started working for her. 
and I, he was about six months old, and uh, she gave him to me after I worked for her for about a year. Yeah, and I can't, I couldn't have done the job without him. You know, especially being a novice shepherd, and you know, ascending into uh, you know kind of tough jobs pretty quickly. Uh, Gus was able to really pull me out of some bad situations uh, just off his instincts because I was still learning how to train dogs too. And now where we are, uh, you know, three years later. Uh, we're working really clean together, and like you said, like I'm still a novice. I'm, I have a long way to go. We both do, and uh, and but I, I love it. You know, something I wasn't looking. I I didn't expect it before I started shepherding. How hard is it to teach sheep stockmanship to somebody that walks in off the streets with zero livestock experience? You know, there's there's aspects of it. <clears throat> that that is that is really simple, you know. I mean, I've read, uh, you know, writing and watched videos of greats like Steve Cote and Bud Williams, that have made me understand uh, the unintuitive aspects of stockmanship. Um, there's, I think, actually, one of the most dangerous things that people come in with is the idea that stockmanship is just an intuitive thing, because there is aspects of it that make sense. You know, you walk behind a sheep and it might just move forward. I mean, but but there's other there's other more nuanced aspects of stockmanship that if you walk in with uh, you know more humility and start l learning what those guys have to talk about, you can really learn how to have that sort of physical conversation, this really subtle way of communicating with your livestock, and get them to move exactly where you want them to go, exactly how you want them to go, and uh, go very far with that. I I love this topic about how people who are completely new, how they approach livestock and how you train those types of instincts, or again, not just instincts, but skills in stockmanship. And we just completed our first shepherd's boot camp that has been opened up to a wide, wide audience. And it was awesome to watch Dylan bring some folks who are absolute noobs and some folks who've had sheep for a very long time to see the array of, I think just as much as there's different personalities of people, those personalities in approaching an animal or a group of animals or a, 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 a moment that is pressured, mm -hmm. you can see that in people. And, and it's almost like working dogs. Every dog is different, so you have to approach it differently. And so they're experiencing the approach to the livestock, but as a trainer, someone who's guiding, you have to approach them that way. It was really cool to watch you, Dylan, do that. What, what was your takeaway in, in that experience? Yeah, well, one takeaway, and to answer your question, you know, is like they, all these people who had never put pressure on sheep before were able to maneuver that, uh, you know, it was just a small group of about 12 to 20 sheep. Uh, you know, we start with them just moving them from one side to the other in a straight line, uh, then moving them in like a figure eight fashion around a tree and around a corral and, you know, placing them so they stop running away and then trying to move them forward and, and drift them into the corner of the paddock where there was a little more pressure. Um, and uh, every single person was able to do just about all of those things. I'd say the only thing that anyone couldn't do was just do the placing where they're kind of pushing them into a tight corner. But, you know, that was within 10 to 15 minute sessions. And I, I just ran through it with every single person. Um, and most of them had never put pressure on sheep. So it's very, very human. It's very graspable. But I, I'm standing in there and I'm kind of coaching them through some of these less intuitive aspects of it. And that, I guess one of the things that I, you know, to answer your question, Cole, that I didn't expect was how clear 
people, everyone was going to come in with some sort of setback and every person's was a little different. You know, some people really had their pressure right, uh, but, but were off on their, their, uh, 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 like how how wide they'd flank out other people just didn't have enough presence um you know and and some people just were like that you know coming in better at it than than others but by the end of it everyone was able to do just about 90 percent of those things yeah. i was really impressed watching you do that because i my dog skills i learned as you were learning and you were investing a lot more time in reading and education um, but the, the way that you were able to work with those people, it was really like the, the way you were using language was so effective to people who don't really have context for the words or the direction you're giving. And it was really, it was just cool to watch you put the people in the places that they needed to be to achieve the thing with words from a distance because it's, it's complicated um, choreography sometimes. Mm -hmm. If somebody asked me who to go follow, like in a pasture to learn stockmanship or good horsemanship, I'd say go find the fat old guy on the slow horse <laughs> and climb in his pocket because he will always be at the right place at the right time for where the cattle are going to be. He's never going to be in a rush and never be hurried. And that's what I feel like good bovine stockmanship looks like for me. Like I should never be in a rush. I should never be stressed out. I should read the animals and get in front of them. Um, and I, I know you guys don't have a lot of experience working with cattle, but is, do you see any parallels with bovine stockmanship? And is it easier or harder to teach somebody coming from cows to teach them sheep? I would say, <laughs> they say, you know, you can teach a sheep man to be a cow man, but you can't teach a cow man to be a sheep man. Okay. Uh, so I think that there's probably a little bit of, I don't know, I think it might be a cultural thing. I mean, let's be real. Right. You're a cattle guy. You're talking to some sheep folks. Yeah. We're sheep heavy on this conference, and I think that it's great. And I, and I love to see our worlds really The future weave. has more sheep in it. The future, uh, yeah. And females goats. and sheep and goats. Um, but, but we need, we need the impact of bovine as well. And people need to eat beef. You know, we got that. What I love is that the range wars are over, you know, we're, you're sitting around with a whole bunch of shepherds and we're talking, you know, stockmanship and, and the differences of my experience, which makes me super stoked. Thanks for talking with us. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sit with you as a cattle guy too. We're, we're outnumbering well, you. Thanks for that. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> thanks for taking pity on me. <laughs> well, I did want to say that approaching what I've learned through dogs is that young dogs that are being trained up to work goats, you can work calves and have a similar response from the calves as the dog would have response from the goats. So you can train up. You can train up a pup on a, on a calf, and, and there's similarities there, whereas a sheep is different. Uh, we worked with Ryan Morgan, awesome young cattleman, and uh, we had him jump in the sheep camp a few nights, and that guy did not like it one bit. But we needed a cattleman because we were running, we were doing some custom-type grazing, contract grazing, getting paid to manage someone else's cattle, and uh, he, ran, he ran the cattle program, he didn't like getting into that sheep camp one bit. And I think, I think he could see, 
he's good at what he does. He knows animals. But you have to really love the type of animal that you're working with um, or see the value of the whole of why you're working with that animal. If you're an ecological doctor, for example, the right tool for the right job. Uh, and I think that Ryan's approach perhaps was different than ours, but he had the, he has down the relationship to self, to dog, to animal. It's a formula that we all kind of create for ourselves. And so when we look at, you know, cattle people coming in to work with sheep, I think we all intuitively know if you've worked in a corral system, you know what pressure feels like, you know when things get elevated, you can tell when an animal is in distress, frustrated, mad, scared. If you have those basic principles, you know what you're working with. The difference is, is how fast are you going to move and where do you put yourself? Because with sheep and goats being in the wrong place at the right, wrong, right, wrong place at the wrong time, wrong place at the wrong time is different than being in the wrong place at the wrong time with cattle. I, I feel like being out of position on sheep and goats can have more of a large consequence than being out of position with cattle. Because, I mean, with the cow, you know, on a sort, this is just the picture in my head because we did it recently, sorting from one pen to another through a gate, you know, they're kind of coming one at a time, they're kind of coming single file. Sheep don't really do that, do they? they? They move like water. Yeah, there's either one or all of them. And that one, if there is one, it's freaking out. <laughs> you don't usually have one for very long. You have to expect that if there is one that gets out, you're going to have a flood of the rest coming. So you're, you're absolutely right. You're working with a lot, thousand pound in one unit. We're working with maybe eight or ten <laughs> in but with the same weight but right. moving all over the place so a shepherd is nimble and quick we we do have our dogs we don't work dogs in our corral system we try to practice low stress stockmanship as much as possible but having experience working in a corral with cattle versus sheep and goats it's a very different experience from my observation cattle would have a much much higher stress tolerance and a much more muted stress response in a corral situation than sheep would. It, it's, would that be? I, I appreciate the, that idea, but I think what I loved about Regenerate is there was a lot of talk about the social and the cultural aspects of this work, not just the practical stuff that was really juicy during the conference. Yeah. But what I appreciated bringing to this was talking about culture and I think that it depends with animals based off of the animal, the culture of that particular herd or flock of an operation. It's, it's the behavioral dynamics of each group. We have different breeds. We have different adaptations. We have, it, I think you could have the same, the same class of animals, same breed, same age, and they could be in one outfit or another and you can have fully different outcomes just based off of the, the, the nature-nurture situation, the behavioral learning and adaptation from how those animals are managed. So I don't know if there's like a one-size-fits-all. I think it really just depends on the culture of that herd or that flock. Interesting. 
Is, is that maybe kind of an observation you picked up in your time in France and Spain, which we are running short on time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Thank for you. those in podcast land, the short podcast this week is my fault. You can send me all the hate mail. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so was that maybe an observation that you made in, in your time in France and Spain with the herders there that, you know, the same genetics, one valley over can be a totally different animal? I would say that there was a lot of observation around the differences culturally in Spain and France, more with the people than the animals. I think that, I mean, I think it's actually all the same. We are all culturally different and our animals are all, all different. If I went out and saw your scene and met your animals, I think it would have been the same as going across the, you know, across Atlantic. I think it just, we, we are all creating our own contexts, our, our own operations in these contexts. That cultural element really, really is based off of how we are learning to manage our animals and our operations in our own community. And it, it be it just, you know, a couple or a huge group of people, which I have been lucky to assemble. Very cool. Very cool. So Dylan, let's talk about your meat business for a few minutes. Why did you decide you wanted to start disassembling sheep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I, I wanted to work doing ecological restoration before I got interested in livestock. Uh, it was only through a circuitous, circuitous path that I discovered holistic plan grazing in the Savior Institute. And what that did for me is a lot of other pathways I was looking at um, felt to me uh, ungrounded in the sense that I had this ideal of having ecological restoration, but many of these pathways I was looking at depended on grant funds entirely or the PhD projects of other people. And in this manner, running a regenerative livestock business, I was able to ground my ecological ideals in something that could feed my family, my community, make a profit, and restore broad acres at, at, at the same time. And so that that's what I always knew when I was getting into livestock, that I wanted to have a meat business. Okay. Have you always liked to eat sheep? I mean, I grew up on lamb chops, but that's about it. Okay. And, and I think that's the case for most any you know most most Americans that grow up on lamb it's just about as far as they get um, you know at least that's been my experience you know and a lot of people never eat it you know growing up now you advocate for eating all the animal and and Dylan's done a fantastic job in the marketing component of getting chefs to understand the importance of the use of the whole an, whole animal and I've been really impressed to see how he's been able to market whole animals to restaurants in town. Our animals are grazing less, less than 10 miles away from where this, an, this meat is being served on menus. Yeah, I mean, in some instances, less than two miles. Yeah. Do you have the chefs or their customers come out to see the sheep after they've, after they've had a meal or the, the chef before he buys your meat? Yeah, those that you know, can make the time for it and want to do it. I mean, that's something that they ask me for. Uh, and so I'll bring them out as often as I can, you know, support that and so that they can come see it. I'm never going to be getting, I mean, as far as I can see, an organic certification. Um, I want to be that certification. We live in a small community. 
um, in Ojai, about 7,000 people, although I do serve as far as Santa Barbara and Los Angeles, which are much larger. Um, I want to be 100% transparent and I want to be able to serve that. So anyone who does come out or want to come out and see how I do things, um, I try to accommodate that because I, I'm not going to look for a third party anytime soon. There's a phrase I'm thinking of, maybe somebody can help me out with it. Um, shake the hand that feeds you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love it. I love, I love how you're making that happen. Yeah, um, yeah it, it helps. I mean, I spend a lot of time at, around town and, 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 and that's a lot of the people that I meet around town are the ones that are ordering sheep because uh, it's just, it's very difficult to uh, buy or trade for trust. You know, it's just, when you, when you build that with someone, you know, it's kind of, it's not exactly a material process. That was a really good quote. It's really difficult to, to buy or trade trust. I really like that. I was going to say, you know, shake the hand to that that feeds you. But it, in our town, it's like pass a free beer or give a <laughs> high five for the shepherd that is preventing fires and feeding us at the same time. That's our, our, our deal in our town. It's been epic to see how our community has rallied around the community of shepherds that work so hard to do good work, preventing fires, managing landscapes, and and at the end of the day, feeding feeding you know feeding folks in the town and people visiting. Yeah, so, real quick for those of you out there in audio format land, um, you spoke about a, a, a sheep superhighway around Ojai, and that's that's your vision for fire control. That's right. So Shepherdess Land and Livestock, there's another grazing operator in the Ojai Valley called Ventura Brush Goats. We are working together with the Ojai uh, Valley Fire Safe Council to help support the development of what we're calling the Super Goat Highway. Okay. Creating the most fire safe and fire ready town we possibly can. We got devastated by the Thomas Fire in 2018 and what we've what we know we can do is we can graze contiguous acres around the most vulnerable fire prone areas of our valley with sheep and goats mindfully choosing in a prescriptive approach where to graze when to graze how to graze and we would like to be able to stitch together enough acreage where we can keep 2,000 acre, 2,000 animals grazing year-round throughout that whole valley. And that's miles and miles and miles and miles of private and public land. And we are slowly but surely, only within three years, we've actually been able to stitch together several properties that have been able to keep us on the ground without using a truck and trailer getting paid to graze for several months at a time. So it's happening. It's happening a lot faster, I think, than I could have anticipated. But if we can model how we could pull private landowners and public agencies and land conservancies to all come together to recognize if we allow these grazers and pay these grazers to do this good work, we are going to be able to maximize what our community can do on an annual basis in fire prevention. And let me tell you this, you're going to like this one, Brad. This also includes cattle because there are areas where bovine impact is most appropriate for the job. 
and there are areas where grazing is not the solution either. Yeah. And we have to use all of the tools necessary, but we need to get really, we need to find that precision of when grazing is the best approach and then be able to jump on it to do the job and the time frame that we have. I think my friend Gail would say soil is the answer. Now what's the question? Mm. Um, so we are short on time. I don't want to keep you guys from your dinner reservation. John, I'll give you a choice. You can, we can either talk briefly about how to Xerox the business model, how it could be replicated, or you can talk about grazing at LA Sheriff's Office. Oh, yeah. He oh, was the boss on that one. Definitely going to pick Sheriff's Office. All right. Um, I, I don't think, as, as much as I listen to the magic of, of Cole's information library, that is her every day, I, I, I don't know that um, I'm qualified to speak to the other one. So <laughs> um, you, you were recounting a story while we were waiting for Cole and Dylan about your, your neighbor calling you about yeah. one bull in the wrong place. Yeah, he just... My neighbor called and was a little concerned that there was still a bull out and wanted to make sure that we knew that there was still a bull out near the cows and that the bull wasn't with the cows. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, I have a lot of highway across the ranch. And this neighbor also has wheat pasture that's on the other side of a four-wire fence from where I put my cows. So when I saw his name on caller ID, I'm thinking, I've got cows on his wheat pasture. This is going to be bad, but it wasn't. So, yeah. So I, I started to tell you this story, and you actually said, "Stop telling me the story. <laughs> Hold it." So I, I think this is where I'll start with the um, sheriff's department job. I was sleeping in the sheep camp. Um, well, I wasn't sleeping. I had just woken up. I was getting my boots on. It was probably 5:30. Sun was about to come up. I'm about to get on the quad and ride over to where the the sheep and goats are supposed to be on this property. Um, and somebody knocks on my camper trailer. So I was like, that's not great. I haven't even had coffee yet. Please leave me alone. But I went and opened it and there was two of the, they have a fire camp on the, on the property and two of the fire department guys were there and they're like, Hey, just quick question. Do you mind if we move your water trailer? We're doing, we're doing a training today and it's, it's somewhat in the way. And I was like, yeah, I'd help you move it. But I got another trailer on my truck right now. And they're like, no, no, no worries. We can take care of it. I was like, great. And they're like, also thanks for grazing behind the fire camp really appreciate that. And I, I thought to myself, geez, fire camp's a good mile away from where I left those sheep last night when I saw them <laughs> bed down. And I, so I said, you're welcome. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, they're just cleaning up the hill right behind the fire camp. I was like, they sure are. Good uh, to know. <laughs> so they went to go move the trailer and I, I, I swiftly got in my truck with my dog and drove up the dirt road to where they're supposed to be they weren't there, so I kept going around past the fire camp. They weren't there, and I get to the parking lot, which is adjacent to the two detention centers, and uh, there's, there's about 500 small ruminants in a parking lot and a lot of guards <laughs> and, and staff taking videos of the situation. And I was like, this is on purpose, and I let my dog out, and she... My dog's made mistakes in the past. I, I make mistakes all the time, but um, I, she can she can smell a high intensity situation, and so she knew that she had to do this very well. And every single person that I was passing was like, "Your dog is so incredible. How does it do that?" And nobody was like, "Your sheep and goats are in the parking lot." And so it was, it was very beautiful. It, I quickly got them out of the parking lot and, and ran them up 
the hill and got them back to where they were supposed to be. But yeah, it was. The second largest detention center in Los Angeles County. Yeah. And it was quite the project and, and I think very hopeful. And you had inmates helping you hurt. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. We had four incarcerated dudes working with us in a pilot program. Our hope is to create a training program with an accreditation. So when these trainees come out, should they make it and like it, they can have job placement because we don't have enough skilled and trained herders domestically in the States and in California. And let me tell you, these guys work hard. I think it's going to be one out of every 20 are going to be able to cut it. But if it's for a season and it's good work, I'm game. I'm really excited to see what we can do at the Los Angeles um, the Sheriff's Department Detention Center in uh, North County, Los Angeles. And our team is excited to grow into building that program. And John had a good foray being in jail for most of the summer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There, there were some really beautiful moments. Um, so the first day we, we met with the inmates, we did a quick fence training and they helped us finish a paddock that we were gonna herd them through the facility. So we herded 400, I think we had at the time. 400, a little less than a mile, down the main drag of the detention center. Where all the rest of them are out playing basketball. Yep, away. essentially. Yeah, there, there's, there's, yeah, this is several sections of facilities. They call it north and south, and there's a couple others, and there's just a big main. There's a big main drag, and uh, you know, folks who are who are out in the on the courts or getting their time out in the sun are watching us herd the first day of our pilot project. Herd 400 animals with these with these these four dudes who just jumped in they were just kind of randomly selected but what did you what did you see john well the, so two of the guys were not older um like middle-aged mexican dudes. if you say middle-aged 30 i might come over and smack you <laughs> no i think we're all middle-aged i don't know what age they were they're somewhere between 40 and 52. i i can't i don't know they were they were older than me fair enough um and I was working with one, and we kind of gave them general like instruction on flight zones and, and kind of what they needed to do, and they were listening and looking at us like, yeah, sure. I just want to go outside. <laughs> that, honestly, that was their favorite part. Um, but we started, we started moving the animals through the field, and the two gentlemen who were like older Mexican dudes, first thing they did, pick up switches and just start waving them and doing like whoosh, whoosh, at the animals, and I was like, He'd done this before. He's like, yeah, like I grew up in Mexico. I did this with my grandfather. Like I was like, with this many, he's like, dude, way more than this. <laughs> like, he's yeah, probably yeah. like, this is like five. What yeah, are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, he's like four hundred, dude. We would do thousands. So it's and you know he had nothing. He had no idea about building the electric fence or or you know like maybe higher density impact on 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 soils, whatever. But like he just picked up a switch and started moving them. I didn't have to tell him anything. He knew what to do already. It was so beautiful. It would be really cool to Aikido the experience that folks have within their own, you know, cultural context or experiences and like take that and then be able to form it and meld it and sculpt it into a job where they make money and they're doing good things and they grew up with, you know, chivos because abuelo had chivos 
and get them out of situations that will create this cycle of oppression. And, and I think that we need more folks to be able to do this. We need to create jobs for folks to do this. We need to create markets for folks to be able to sell their product. And what we're trying to do is, is just test a model. The jury's still out. Who knows if we're all going to survive the crazy goat world of insanity. But at least we have sheep, and sheep are sweet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> awesome. It's a great place to end. Really thank you guys for your time. Um, where can we find you on the Internet if anybody wants to reach out and contact you? If you want to look for myself, Dylan Boken, uh, you can find Bokehouse at bokehouse.com. That's B-O-E-K house.com. And on Instagram at B-O-E-K underscore house. That's right. <laughs> uh, you can't find me on the internet. John does not do the socials, which I respect, but you can just look at hashtag John the Shepherd. And you can find us at shepherdislandl.co and on the IG, shepherdis.land.and. Are you still using BCB? And BCB Shepherdess. I'm trying to break myself away, like my brand as a personal human from the business because the business is becoming in many of us. Okay. You know, you know what it's like. You, are like, are you when you know people walk up to you and be like, "Oh, you're Ranching Reboot," and you're like, "I'm actually another guy too." Yeah. You know, I have a whole other life yeah, besides like, Red Hill Rancher. I Rancher's. have a name, yeah. and it's like, so that's what I'm doing. BCB Shepherdess is my handle. And I share a lot about what I am personally doing, but Shepherdess Land and Livestock has become much greater than me. So you can learn about each one of those things, me or the business and or, and also Shepherdess Land and Livestock socials will allow for folks to find out when we're doing trainings, application openings for season 2024, and uh, a lot of other good stuff. Thank you so much for having us. Awesome. I'll try to make sure I get all that in the show notes. And uh, you guys go enjoy your dinner. And if you're out there in podcast land and this wasn't enough, go listen to 28. It's Cole's first episode. And other than that, have a great week. Thank you, Brian. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts. So leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.